Warning! This week's Escape Pod is rated R for strong language, inappropriate social behavior, and cynicism. This week's Escape Pod features Mer Lafferty's novel Playing for Keeps, now in trade paperback from Swarm Press. Buy it from Amazon on August 25th. Escape Pod 171 August 15th, 2008 Today's story, Fenneman's Mouth, by Andy Duncan. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely, and this week we have a near-future science fiction piece about some of the subtler ways technology changes us. We present Fenneman's Mouth, by Andy Duncan. Mr. Duncan lives in Maryland, hails from South Carolina, and has degrees from universities in North Carolina and Alabama. Although less so in this story, a lot of his SF and fantasy has a very southern flavor. My favorite quote about him comes from Craig Jacobson of the Science Fiction Research Association, who said, If Harper Lee and Gene Wolfe had a love child, Andy Duncan is it. This story first appeared in his collection, Belutha Hatchie and Other Stories, which truly is a great bunch of stories, by the way. The story is read for us by Jared Axelrod, host of the freewheeling Voice of Free Planet X and the Aliens You Will Meet podcast, and highly dedicated Groucho Marx impersonator. You'll see why that matters in a moment. Jared's one of the most hyper-creative individuals I know. In addition to his writing and his podcasts and his comic work and his costuming, he also built me a working sonic screwdriver. Mine's made of brass and very steampunk-looking, and yes, he does take commissions. You can find all of his stuff at jaredaxelrod.com. To slightly paraphrase Abraham Lincoln, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people at story time. Fenneman's Mouth by Andy Duncan Twenty-three children, asked Groucho Marx, eyebrows arched. As he reared back into his swivel chair, the swivel chair-like squeak was just audible above the audience's gasps and murmurs. A nice touch, that. Man, my idea. Yes, sir, said the beaming Mrs. Cressetti, who giggled and made the slightest suggestion of a curtsy, her fingers laced together with... Nervousness? No, no, it was decorum. Angelina Marconi Cressetti, as I had named her, was used to this reaction, surely, the titters and whispers of Eisenhower-era sophisticates. But that made her all the prouder, Somewhere in that boxy purse, no doubt, were photos of every last bambino at all ages. We'd spent more time on Groucho, of course, for obvious reasons, but I was proudest so far of Mrs. Cressetti. Her broad forehead, her long teeth, her appropriately wide hips beneath her simple checked frock. The very image of a fresh-faced, old-world innocence. She dimpled and awaited the mangy old ruse next question, which was directed as long-time viewers might have predicted, to a straight man. Fenneman! The studio audience laughed loudly, as it always did when Groucho turned in mock desperation or annoyance to his long-suffering, hopelessly square announcer. Groucho's voice slightly increased in pitch whenever he said Fenneman's name, as if he were just at the edge of losing his celebrated cool. This half-swalk had been funny in the stateroom scene of A Night at the Opera, Steward! Steward! And was still funny on You Bet Your Life, 25 years later. He was a pro, Groucho was, and I did right by him. 
I modulated that pitch myself. Did you hear that, Fenneman? I certainly did, Groucho, the announcer dutifully replied. Groucho waggled his cigar and asked, Did you have something to do with this, Fenneman? A roar of laughter this time. Fenneman, his fretting blush evident, even on grainy black and white, tried good-naturedly to answer, but Groucho interrupted. With, uh, bringing this woman on the show, I mean, Fenneman. Each time, the laughing Fenneman, his grin now slightly forced, tried to reply. Groucho interrupted again, and the audience laughed all the louder. Seated beside me, Pamela mouthed Groucho's words along with him. A new habit. Leah had once done the same when we were both new at this together. Where was Leah, anyway? We weren't done yet, not by a long shot. Please, Fenneman, I'm not asking about your personal life here. Let's keep this on a professional level, shall we? I found myself chuckling. No matter how many times you look at these old clips, they're still funny, right? We've been looking at this one for, what, nearly 13 hours, and it still made me laugh. Oh, sure. This wasn't technically an old clip. We were, after all, the first people to ever see it. I mean, really see it, as opposed to just claiming to have seen it. Imagining having seen it. But by the time we were done, it'd be as good as anyone's memory of it. Better. I mean, it still made me laugh, didn't it? Groucho had turned back to Mrs. Cressetti. Twenty-three children. Well, that's remarkable. So far, so good, but something nagged me. I made a note. Fenneman's mouth. That's uh, quite an achievement. Thank you. Even remembering their names, that must be an achievement. There was Leah, pacing in the darkness on the other side of the plexiglass, long legs striding. When did she find time to work out? Cell phone clamped to her ear. At moments, her chiseled face shone blue bathed in television, but I couldn't see the screen. I didn't have to. So, tell us, Mrs. Cressetti... Why'd you decide to have so many children? With a jerk of my head, I was back to business. Pam whispered, A half second longer, right? Reverence for the moment. I liked that. Yeah, I whispered, eyes on the screen. It was less a word than a breath. With the aplomb of a veteran front-stoop philosopher, the authentically slightly bird image of Mrs. Cressetti shrugged her broad shoulders and replied, I love my husband. Cut to Groucho's look of disbelief, which froze as Pam clicked extend. The audience's laughter flattened out. Ha ha! We put that over easily. Wait for it, I said, feeling quite the old vaudevillian. I should join the friars. Now! Pam clicked resume. The laughter surged. Groucho's eyebrows rode up. Well, I love my cigar, too. Groucho said, but I take it out once in a while. Yes, we said in unison, springing up and high-fiving. Perfect. As I yanked my headset, the pandemonium in a You Bet Your Life studio abruptly receded, giving way to background hum and hiss of the late-night control room and the murmur of Lee's voice beyond the window. My elation ebbed just as fast. It's phenomenal, Alex. It's just phenomenal what you're doing. I am so proud of you. You know that? Sweep Week's episode of America's Funniest Fuck-Ups had been my idea. A classic episode, full of all your baby boomer favorites and mine. The in-the-butt bob, 
episode of the newlywed game, the fumbly Julia tiled snatching up the chicken off the floor and slapping it back in the pan, soupy sales fire truck joke, the Tonight Show where Raquel Welch asked Johnny, would you like to pet my pussy? None of these had actually happened, of course, no one had seen them, but they were classics nonetheless, cherished TV memories of millions of Americans, indistinguishable from reality. I got the idea from those blooper LPs I'd loved as a kid. Kermit Schaefer was the producer's name, and he made a mint off those things. And when he couldn't find, for example, an actual tape of beloved Uncle Don calling all the little tots in Radioland little bastards, another cherished fuck-up that never happened, why, well, he just hired a voice actor to reenact it. So I said, hey, we've got technology Kermit Schaefer never dreamed of. We're all tired of footage of the nanny blowing her lines to hell. Let's finally put these classics on the air. Give people what they want. And as for what I wanted, well, that was somewhat harder, wasn't it? Zell? Earth to Zell? Pam poked me in the side, her nail surprisingly sharp and deep. I had not found time lately for the gym. What do you think, Zell? Putty over that audience hole and it's a wrap. What do you say? Not so fast, I said more harshly than I intended, and I snatched up my legal pad to avoid seeing Pam's hurt expression and Leah's cellular love fest. There was one item not crossed off. And that reaction, a uh, reaction shot, when Groucho's needling him, uh, there, there's still something wrong with Fenneman's mouth. Oh, the hell there is. Yes, it's true. Cue it up, okay? Let's take a look. I'll, I'll show you. Leah had pocketed the phone. She now perched one hip on the edge of the conference table, skirt riding up, face upturned, lips slightly parted, reflections flickering across her Bryn Mawr cheekbones. As she looked up at the screen, awash, no doubt, in the afterglow of the latest senatorial campaign success of Alex fucking Chiang, spin doctor to the stars. Zell, come on, you do know what time it is. It's time to get this thing done right or not at all, Pam. That's what time it is. This isn't Birmingham. I slapped down the legal pad. My half-full styrofoam cup of coffee hopped on the counter and doused my slacks on the way down. I jerked backwards, a split-second expectation of heat replaced by plaster and clamminess. Shit, I elaborated, already feeling like an ass. Just cue it up, okay? I'm going to the can. Turning my back on Pam, who deserved better, she had been hired as a rookie hotshot straight out of Fox's Birmingham affiliate, sure, but two years ago. I stalked off toward the can, which took me, of course, oh happy day, into the conference room. Leah blinked, startled, as I entered and stood there, the door to control hissing shut behind me. She hadn't been watching Alex's stuff at all. She'd been watching mine. On the screen above, a grinning Bozo the Clown clapped his big puffy white gloves together and said, Come on, Billy, you can do it. One more basket and you've won all the prizes. Lee gestured with her moat and with her chin. Her mouth, when she smiled, was always a little too wide for comfort. I hadn't watched them all straight through before. Great work, Sal. You, you've done it this time. We've done it, I said. Shh, here it comes. Chubby little Billy's five-year-old face was red and clenched in concentration, the tip of his tongue visible at the corner of his mouth. As he rose up from his crouch, his shirt rode up, exposing his navel. 
He grunted as he heaved the bozo ball into the air in the child's version of a layup. Cut to the bozo ball hitting the rim, bouncing, hitting the rim a second time, and bouncing out. The pipsqueak cheers of the small fry studio audience turned to groans. Cut to Bozo, his big goofy hand patting on Little Billy's shoulder. Little Billy's round face, still focused on the out-of-shot basketball goal, was, as I insisted, unreadable. Ah, that's too bad, Billy. But listen, you have your very own Bozo ball for you to take home to say thank you for playing with us today. Leah stepped on Bozo's next line, and I winced with annoyance, then felt ashamed. That shrug of Billy's here. I love that. And remember, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game, right, boys and girls? Little Billy shrugged off Bozo's hand and said, Get screwed. The audience gasped. One little girl's voice was distinct. Ah, woohoo! Bozo suddenly looked beneath his makeup, naked. And old. Leah had never laughed out loud, just a soft clucking noise at the back of her throat as she rocked back and forth. She did that now, her curls bouncing. If she were digitized, we could dub her a, a throaty chuckle, maybe, or a Diane Cannon Bray. Billy, Bozo managed to say. That's a no-no, Billy. A Bozo no-no. Someone recovered. He shook a white, puffy finger of admonishment in Billy's direction. Billy responded with a gesture of his own. Total excitement. The screen went dark. Oh, God. (laughs) Still beaming, Leah set down the remote, hopped off the table, and stretched, her diamond-studded navel flashing like little Billy's. Gift from Alex, no doubt. Uh, That's my favorite one, Zell. I mean... I love Groucho, too, but little Billy, you just can't beat it. And the funny thing is, her back was to me as she closed her briefcase, and I took the opportunity, hating myself, to stare. I remember seeing that on TV, back when I was younger than Billy, even. I know that's ridiculous, but there it is. She raked one hand through her hair, shook her head as if to wake herself up. I guess I've told you that before, huh? Closest thing to being true is Groucho, I said. He actually made the cigar joke, but on the radio, and it was cut before broadcast, so no one outside the studio audience ever saw it. But as for little Billy, no, Leah, I'm sorry. I guess he was one of your imaginary friends. I was reciting rather than talking, but hey, it passed for conversation as she put on her jacket and delayed her going out the door. Going somewhere, I asked. Hmm? She asked absently, picking up the remote again. Aren't we done? She switched from closed circuit to broadcast to CNN 4, a tape of Senator Whitley's celebrated press conference for the upteeth time. Yeah, I thought. We're done. Only one of us is slow to catch on. Not quite, I said. Uh, Still some touching up to do here and there. You guys don't need me anymore, surely. Alex is waiting. I mean, I thought I'd go down to the Whitley headquarters on the way home, you know, see what the latest is. I thought those poll results would be somewhere. She surfed the news channels, mainly shuffling images of Senator Whitley amid a babble of sound bites. Controversial remark, uh, official denial, Senator's own recording contradicts. Actually, I said while telling myself, no, don't say it, don't say it. I thought maybe you and I could clear out of here together, go and have a drink, sort of celebrate. Her profile, expressionless, 
She metronomically clicked the remote. Show being done, I mean. And your amazing elastic candidate bouncing back at it again, so it seems. You know that wouldn't be a good idea, Leah said. Wait, hush, here it is. Of 10,000 Californians surveyed by phone and net just 30 minutes ago reveals that the 45% accept the senator's explanation of her remark to 30% belief for the ABC tape with 25% undecided. To recap, we are told that within the hour, the senator's campaign will release a portion of a videotape made by a disinterested bystander, a high school newspaper editor, which, according to the senator's spokesman, will demonstrate that her statement was not, in fact... Leah's phone purred. She muted the TV. Jesus, yeah? Her pinched look vanished as she grinned and held the instrument slightly away from her ear. I heard its tiny revelry. All right, already, I'm coming. Pour me a glass before it's gone, will you? Okay, hey, Alex, high school newspaper editor, huh? Nice touch. Bye. Me too. It was that me too that tore it, that in the dreamy way she pocketed the phone, as if she couldn't remember where it went, while smiling at the general direction of the John Wayne Coors ad on the muted screen. You'd think you work for Senator Whitley, I said, and not for me. I wanted to fight, I guess. Instead, I got a darted glance of round-mouthed astonishment, and then a floorward look of thin-lipped guilt. Oh. I said. She lifted her briefcase, set it down, sighed, attempted to shrug. I wasn't going to mention it until after we were done with the show. Really done, I mean. First thing Monday, I was going to tell you, or ask you, really, because I haven't made up my mind. Alex says there's a job for me, not only during the campaign, but after. But who's to say she'll even be reelected? And then where would I be? I was sitting down now, elbows on knees, looking at the carpet. Did anyone in for a vacuum in here? Her feet stepped into view. On her ankle was a new tattoo. A second rose. Then again, she's done so much for the state, for the country, and if she can survive this, this stupid thing, this half-audible off-the-cut crack about the Pope, and if I can use my skills, the skills you taught me to help, well then, why shouldn't I? Zell? Zell, talk to me, Zell. She squatted, knees sharp in my face. You know I still value your advice, Zell, she said. I always did. Tell me, I said. Do you always have to work with the people you're screwing, or is it the other way around? Oh, Jesus. Leah, I, I didn't mean that. Leah, wait. Get out of my way, she said. She pushed me back, her briefcase between us like a shield. Leah, listen, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, but I I'm confused here, okay? Just a month ago, that last night we worked late, remember? You said... Don't you dare put words in my mouth, Zell, ever again. You always did that. It was always your version. Wait, Leah, you did, don't you remember? You said that given some time, you and me, we might have a chance. I did not say that. I did not. Stop it. Get out of my head, my past, please. She swept past me into the corridor. Was that a snort? A sob? I slumped against the paneling, looking for something to look at as her high heels stuttered across the tile. My eyes, like a wino's in a bus station, tracked to the TV screen. Audrey Hepburn this time, hawking Ramada inns. 
The stairwell door crashed open. Leo echoed all the way down as the door creaked slowly shut. I pushed myself upright, shuffled into the corridor, tried and failed as I passed the stairs to hear more echoes ascending. In the gleaming brightness of the lavender-smelling can, I splashed my face, left the tap running for the company, had a seat, stared at the tile, rubbed my wet palms together till they were dry, listened to the hair-trigger automatic urinals ever malfunctioning, amuse one another. A beep here, a beep there, a flush. I did my best to think about nothing, but I couldn't help wondering, fleetingly, how Alex... My brilliant ex-intern Alex, who was using his video skills not to hawk cars and cheap laughs and beer, but to make the world a better place, and to win Leah away in the process, how he had fixed the Pope business. Not a simple dub, certainly no quick edit, something more creative, more convincing. I'd find out soon enough. Not that I cared, really. It was just, you know, professional curiosity. Beep, flush, beep. It had been a sob there in the doorway. Definitely a sob. When I got back to control, Pam was sitting in lotus position on the sofa in the back of the room, her gym bag on her lap, watching the Groucho clip. She didn't look at me mercifully as I dropped into the prickly, coffee-smelling cushions beside her. She must have seen and heard everything through the plexiglass. Oh well. There are no secrets in television. Fix Fenneman, she murmured. Yeah, I-, I see. Good job. I said it without really seeing or caring, having already decided to bless her efforts and call it a night. Then I focused on the screen and sat forward, intent. Please, Fenneman, I'm not asking about your personal life here. It really was a good job. An excellent job. Pam had outdone herself. In the face of Groucho's sidekick, I now read not just a mingled embarrassment and amusement, not just a game acceptance with a hint of weariness, but something downright wise and tragic as well. Fenneman as eternal footman, always looking on, always providing straight lines, but seeing and understanding as the glib Groucho never could. Or maybe it was late, and I was drained, and I had looked at the damn clip too long. No matter. This Fenneman was an improved Fenneman, and the minute adjustments Pan had made, invisible though they may have been to the lay viewer, made all the difference to me. Pam, I said. Painters used to tell an old joke. They said, you know what a portrait is? A portrait is a painted likeness of a person, with a little something wrong about the mouth. Two hours ago, Pam, what we had there was a portrait of Fenneman. But now I feel I'm in the presence of the true Fenneman, the accurate, the living, the quintessential Fenneman. I applaud you. Had I ever seen her smile so? Thank you, she finally said, and poked me in the ribs again. Her finger stayed there only a second too long. Now can we get something to eat? I looked at her. I was strung out and exhausted but I could still process, given time. When had she pierced her nose? It suited her. Before I could reply, she added, You said earlier that when we were done, we'd get a bite or, or something. I did, didn't I? I said. I had no recollection of it at all. We clumped down the stairs in silence. 
Pam waiting in each landing for me to catch up, smiling as if to say, You're almost there. At the garage level, she held the door for me, and didn't quite step aside so that I had to brush past. Her shoulder was softer than I expected. As we walked toward the guard's cubicle, our footsteps echoing, she said, When I first came to work here, I thought you were a real jerk. And now you know it for sure, I said. You probably don't even remember that party, she said. You were pretty wasted. I was not. I haven't been drunk since college. It was true. Oh, so you had no excuse then? Leering, directing all your comments down my blouse. She sounded amused. Hey now, I don't remember it like that. I remember a tipsy girl from Alabama who talked too loud and sloshed me with her Heineken. Vodka tonic. As I swept my card through the reader, we studied each other. Okay, I said. Vodka tonic. And allow me to apologize, however belatedly, for my drunken behavior. I made a low bow. It was inexcusable. Most unlike me. Apology accepted. I am Mr. Alonzo, Miss Carey, said the guard, whom my card had summoned on the TV monitor. His milk voice crackled, his face bulged on screen as if he was pushing it too close to the camera. Hi, Morty," we said automatically. The nightly wait for all the locks to release was interminable, made so by Morty's wheezy good humor. You guys still working on that old-timer show? Just about done, Morty, I said loudly. As the locks whirred and clanked, I murmured to Pam, too low for Morty to hear. You left with the bartender. I never... You did. She considered, smiled. You mean Raoul? I shook my head. Herman. As she mouthed the name Herman, Morty's voice broke in. Hey guys, I got one for you. Ought to be on your show. You remember that one when Arnold Palmer's wife tells Carson that before every tournament, uh, for luck, she kisses Arnie's balls? <laughs> Can you believe it? And Carson, oh God. He says there, yeah, I cried. Uh, that's a great one, huh, Morty? His jowls shook with laughter as he reared back, groucho-like, in his swivel chair. I never did industrial work myself, but I had to admire the craftsmanship. This upgrade was the most convincing Morty yet, only a split second's lag time before the insertion of each employee's name gave it away. To the professional eye, that is. Every time I see that one, gosh... Morty continued, slapping his authentically beefy thigh. I just about pee my pants. <laughs> Pardon my French, Miss Carey. See you, Morty, she said as the door was finally trundling open. See you guys. Ah, <laughs> uh, me. Classic stuff, you can't go wrong. The trapped exhaust stink of the garage was, for a second, overpowering. I'm over here, Pam said, jingling keys. I'll drive. Herman, yeah, sure. Hadn't thought about him in a while. Big, muscular guy. Not really, she said. Tall, yeah, but slim, with a, with a mustache. You had one too, didn't you? If you say so, I told her, and smiled. And that was our story. Unfortunately, this is one I place in the far-too-plausible SF category. 
It is a well-documented phenomenon that people will believe what you tell them, especially in mass media, even if it's in direct contradiction to their own memories or experiences or what they know to be true. And if that doesn't disturb you, it should. You and I aren't immune to this phenomenon. Pretty much any time we allow ourselves to listen to someone with a microphone, we're putting blind trust in them to use their powers for good. But of course, you can trust me. And when I tell you that Mer Lafferty's superhero novel, Playing for Keeps, is a must-listen or a must-read, you can believe me. Hi there, my name is Mer Lafferty, and last winter my superhero novel, Playing for Keeps, was podcasted to 20,000 people, and now it's coming out in print. Playing for Keeps will be published by Swarm Press this August 25th. Many of you helped this book become one of the most popular in podcast history, and I'd like your help again. I need to make a splash on Amazon to push my book up the charts to get more exposure, so I'm asking you to head to Amazon on August 25th to purchase Playing for Keeps. Don't think that since I'm hitting print, I'm forsaking podcasting. During the month of August, I'll be celebrating the print release of Playing for Keeps by reawakening the stories of the Third Wave Companion podcast, holding a video contest, releasing the PDF of the book with an exclusive short story called Parasite Awakens, and on the launch day, frequent video updates from me, letting you know how the book is doing, and perhaps some messages from other podcasters. So go to playingforkeepsnovel.com right now and subscribe to get the new content, and remember to go to amazon.com on August 25th to purchase the book. I can't do it without you. I heard this novel in podcast form, and I'm thrilled that Swarm is putting it out in print. It is a superhero novel, but with a different spin. The focus isn't on the proud and mighty, it's on the also-rans, the folks with minor powers who have no place in the superhero hierarchy. It has its funny moments, but it's not really satire. This is an earnest story that'll make you think. Murr wants to make a big splash with it on launch day, so please, if you want to pick this up, and you should, buy it from Amazon on August 25th. So, let's hit feedback for Escape Pod 165, Those Eyes, by David Brin. This story featured a skeptical astronomer on a radio talk show, interspliced with aliens who need to keep belief in them alive. This story was a hit. Pete gave praise in fewest words, quote, Elves. Aliens. Yeah, it works. Ogion the Silent defied his name by saying, This was a great story because it could be understood in different ways. The scientist narrator manages to be simultaneously dead right and dead wrong. He compares the aliens to the elves in Terry Pratchett novels, too. We would be mad and foolish to let them back in, yet at the same time, we have lost something central to our nature by shutting them out. There was story criticism. Sarah Berlith said, The story was okay until the radio host at the end got too heavy-handed explaining the story to us. I felt like I was being spoon-fed at that point. But most of the really critical comments were technical. The alien processing effect I used for Anna's voice, a mixture of pitch shifting and reverb, worked well for some people, but for others made her voice really hard to understand. More than one person said they had to give up on the story because they just couldn't make the words out. I apologize for that. It's entirely my fault. I was trying for an effect that would change the voice without losing clarity, but it's too easy to forget that listening environments are varied, both in speakers and headphones and in surrounding noise, and also that people for whom listening isn't easy, due to mild hearing difficulty or English not being a native language, will have an even harder time if the sound is strange. I will carry that lesson forward next time, and you might, time permitting, see a remastered version of the story in the archives. Thanks to all of you who spoke up. 
I have one piece of feedback in particular that I want to read at length. This was an email I received from Ghetto. I'd usually cut these down, but this one made a big difference to me personally. He said, I've been a fan of your podcast for over two years now. I guess you could not call me a diehard atheist, but I'm definitely an agnostic. It would all be fine, as it has always been, if it weren't for the fact that I have fallen in love with a girl who happens to be a passionate devotee of a somehow common African religion here in Brazil. Well, as we were getting home from work last night, our conversation, which we usually try to steer away from dangerous waters, was dabbling at alternative medicine. Unfortunately, maybe due to a stressing day, it took a wide turn and moved into, quote, mindless, highly unlikely, unproven beliefs versus, quote, people's right to believe whatever they damn well choose to. Things got really, really heated, with both of us expressing concern towards raising kids under the education the other one was most likely to provide. Well, she went out for a run, and I followed for a workout at a nearby park, taking my MP3 and hitting play on those eyes. I was still munching over what had been said, especially how it had been said, when the story finished and your outro began. Ely, I can't stress it enough. Your words touched me so deeply, and I was so overwhelmingly moved by the only-now-obvious ideas that when my girlfriend finally ran past me again, she found me standing still, red-eyed. Needless to say, I am in the process of reviewing much of my previous attitude towards things I don't agree with. For that alone, thanks are definitely in order. That was yesterday, and I am still working under the impact of the event, astounded by its perfect timing and by how your words were exactly what I needed to hear at exactly the right minute. I even had the feeling you would finish your afterward by saying, Until then, have fun, Gitto. P.S. I think what really did it was the bit where you said, quote, Truly open to treating the other as a thinking human being, and the word, asshole. Thank you, Gitto. I'll return the favor and tell you why your email made a difference. I love doing Escape Pod, and it's easy to say, yeah, we're making a difference, putting good stories in front of more people, advancing a genre I like, etc., blah, blah. But I often have a mental block from my own stuff that keeps me from believing that my work makes a difference to people. This is, of course, bullshit. Everything we do, if it's observed by anyone, affects them. But even with a lot of positive feedback, it's easy for me to think, oh, people are going out of their way to think up nice things to say. That's courteous of them. Your email cut through that, I think because it was an immediate real-world event, and one that's very easy to relate to. Hearing that Escape Pod, that my work, was a direct help to someone else's relationship, that was the evidence that this work actually matters, that I really needed to hear right then. As you said, perfect timing. So thank you. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So share it all you like, but don't sell it, change it, or use it to convince other people that things that didn't happen, happened. All other rights are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about us. And if you can, please consider donating via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our sister podcasts, Podcastle for Fantasy at podcastle.org, and Pseudopod for Horror at pseudopod.org. Couple other podcast shoutouts. I was privileged to read a story for last week's Drabblecast number 75. Norm Sherman presented a trifecta of three flash pieces. I read the one about the puppet who places a personals ad. You can find that at drabblecast.org. Also, ClonePod, the kid-produced podcast I promoted a few weeks ago, is running their second Union News story by Jeffrey Dorigo. ClonePod's running Jeffrey's spinoff series, Team Shikaragaki, about a managed group of kids' superheroes with their own TV show. 
It sounds cute, but this is union dues, so the stories do tend towards dark. Check it out at clonepod.org. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation comes from legendary advertising executive William Bernbach, who said, All of us who professionally use the mass media are the shapers of society. We can vulgarize that society. We can brutalize it. Or we can help lift it onto a higher level. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun.